Agnostics, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guests today are Nick Jacobs and Dan Shea, professors of government at Colby College and the authors of the recently released book, The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place and the Disuniting of America. Nick and Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Michael. Big fan of your show. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start with with talking about your approach to this question, because there's a lot really since since 2016, I would say, that's been written about rural voters. And a lot of it seems very off the cuff, not too well informed, at least in my sense, sense of things. And that definitely doesn't apply to what you've done, which is based on your work's based on really more hard data than any other analysis of rural political attitudes, at least that I'm aware of. And so I thought we could start there and you could talk about what sort of gave data you gathered your approach to looking at rural voters. Well, thank you for, for that question. Thanks for the compliment. I mean, the book is motivated for that very reason, that a lot of the accounts of rural voting and American political geography were just so not only underwhelming, Dan and I, as as rural residents ourselves, we just felt like an important part of the story was missing. Um, part of that story is historical. And Dan and I were very interested in whether or not the rural-urban divide that we are experiencing right now uh, had some historical parallel, whether or not this country has dealt with uh, geographic divisions of this magnitude in the past, in the late 19th century, for instance. And so we went out and started collecting uh, historical elections returns at the at the county level. Uh, but we encountered a problem. It's, it's very difficult to figure out uh, how rural counties are back uh, 200 years ago when most places are rural. Um, so we, we merged our county election returns with uh, had to de go deep into the archives at the Census Bureau to identify how many people living in these counties were living in urbanized areas and, and coming up with measures to identify urban uh, areas when, uh, you know, the great urban centers of the country could fit in the football stadiums <laughs> that <laughs> currently dot the landscape. Uh, Dan, you want to talk about the survey or? Well, yeah. So that was the first piece, the aggregate data piece, trying to get our the sense of changes throughout American history. And Nick's right, it was it's an unprecedented change. And we have a number of figures in in the book that show this dramatic nationalization of the rural voter begins really in the nineteen eighties. So we've seen a rural urban divide at other points in American history, but it's not it's it's short lived or it's just regional, right? There's a there's a there's a regional or state based component. The nationalization process begins in the nineteen eighties and the data Nick is talking about. We think it's probably the largest, one of the largest uh, aggregate election data sets ever created. Um, but, but so that's the first piece. The second piece is getting perceptual data. 
right? What do rural Americans think or what do all Americans think? And then as part of that, what do rural Americans think? So three waves of surveys around the 2020 election before and after, um, totaling 14,000 Americans. We talked to 14,000 Americans, 10,000 of which are rural. Um, we think it's the largest uh, attitudinal study of rural Americans ever done. And the cool thing about it, Michael, on top of that, is that we ask a lot of cool questions. We ask just a, you know, we, we, we ask some stuff I don't think it's ever been asked before. We dive into really important areas and some new areas. You know, I, it's, I'll just end by saying, you know, as Nick and I approached this project, we would have these discussions, maybe these little mini debates about different topics. And we always sort of ended the discussions, these debates, by saying, well, that's an empirical question. And we approach this as objective social scientists. What does the data say? You know, and over and over and over, we were, we were surprised. Sometimes we, sometimes our expectations were confirmed. Very often it was sort of a, a scratching the head surprise. I guess before we get into what you found, maybe all of us are social scientists here. We should maybe define the, the key variable here. What exactly do you mean by a rural voter? How do you define that? Yes, let's let's define our terms. <laughs> So his, when we're thinking about rural voting patterns historically, um, we are relying on U.S. Census, not estimates, but U.S. Census counts of where people live and how closely together people live. So imagine uh, taking a map of the entire United States and dividing it up into the smallest possible and, and, and visibly identifiable sections that you could. Um, well, we might, uh, you know, sometimes this is literally a city block. In some places, it's a, an entire apartment building on a block. Um, it might be the vast spans between two rivers. Um, what the Census Bureau does every time they take a census and have done this since the very first census is carve up the inhabited portions of the United States into these small units and then place every America, American into these units. After the Census Bureau places every American into those units, we can calculate the population density. And if the population density falls below certain thresholds, um, we we count those people as non-urbanized. So the Census Bureau begins to do all this work as an effort to make sense of where urban people are living, because urban people are the exception to the rule until the 1920s, where most people are living in the countryside. And so that's the historical definition of, of rural, or that's whenever we're putting our uh, election returns data in conversation with political geography, that's what we're relying on. And that's different from other approaches, which might just take population density at these much larger um, swaths of land at the county or, unfortunately, even at the state, which misses a lot of the nuance that Dan and I try to correct for. The survey is a little easier. Ruralness, as Dan and I argue, is is an important political identity. And how do social scientists measure people's identities? We ask them, are you a rural person? How important is it to you 
that you are a rural person. Uh, it's it's the perception that counts, and we don't make any exterior or, or pretend to be objective claims about whether this is a real rural person. We care whether or not a person actually thinks to themselves to be rural or not. You know, and, the, and let me just add, the nice thing is that when we overlay the two measures, the perceptual with the aggregate measure, it's pretty darn close. It's, it's you know, for methodologists out there, it's got construct validity, right? It, it, it actually uh, fits pretty pretty close. I just re- also real quick, I can't help but smile. Nick and I once had a, a little bit of a debate about this population density issue and the Electoral College and all that. And uh, we were talking about Utah, for example. Surely Utah must be a, a rural state. It's so large, so few people. Well, according to our measure, 90% of the residents of Utah actually live in urban areas. So, it, you know, population density is honestly not a, not a particularly good measure. I think, I think the measure that we cooked up, that really Nick cooked up, is, is much better. You, you mentioned perception, and I want to talk a little bit about perception of rural voters, because I think like, like a lot of folks, I don't know, maybe when I think about rural voters, or at least when some people on the left think about rural voters who aren't nearly as, of course, well-informed as I am, there's this caricature, right? This sort of uh, uh, church every Sunday, pickup truck, gun rack in the back, maybe a little bit racist, uh, bitter clingers, as the phrase uh, memorably was. Uh, uh, Folks who are kind of uh, confused, uh, angry at a culture that they feel is no longer in sync with their values. Uh, I think it hits all the main points of that that caricature of rural uh, residents, rural voters. And I'm wondering, what about that caricature that I just presented, would you say is kind of closer to the mark and what is maybe not so close to the mark? Well, it's it's interesting that we often moved into our data with those same sorts of expectations. And again and again, that's not what we found. Now, there are a few exceptions. Maybe we can talk about guns and gun control in a second. But over and over, we find that rural voters are no more conservative far out on the right than Republicans in urban and suburban areas. They are not way out there. They're not crazy. So the question is, how do these perceptions, how are they planted in our mind? We can, if you want, Michael, we can talk a little bit about some pop culture stuff, some entertainment culture stuff down the line. But let me, let me mention something else. What we find when we look at um, rural voters, if we simply pull off those that are deeply engaged, the voters that are uh, paying attention, posting online, the ones that that that, that are really connected to uh, the media, if we slice them off, we call them the rural rabble rousers. They make up about about nine percent, less than ten percent. They are really distinct. Those are the ones that are painting their barns. Those are the ones that have the huge signs up that are going to the town hall meetings that are standing with signs at the intersections. Those are the rural Americans that are deeply connected to uh, conspiracy theories and and really far outright uh, uh, ideas. The rest of rural Americans are conservative, to be sure, but not all that different than conservative voters in urban and suburban areas. 
The catch here is that the media tends to focus on the rural rabble rousers. They're the clickbait. They're the ones that are that are, that are willing, anxious to talk to reporters at any turn. And unfortunately, there are fewer uh, reporters in rural America. So when the urban American, urban reporter heads out into the countryside, they grab a hold of the rabble rouser. They take the picture of the rabble rouser, and that becomes the story. Michael, and that's we well, we argue that's how this idea of this crazed right winger uh, is planted in our head. I, I wonder. You, you mentioned in, in many ways, if we take out those rural rabble rousers, that there is, there aren't necessarily a ton of differences in, in various ways between conservatives in non-rural and rural areas, and it, it makes me wonder because there are some people who say that. Ruralness is just not really something that matters in that if you, you know, you, you take a look, rural voters, they're what, older, they're whiter, they probably are less likely to have a college education than urban voters. And so if you consider all that, that explains most of that split. But you argue, right, that and you've mentioned this before, that rural identity is a real thing and it matters. And maybe you could talk a little bit about what that rural identity is and why it matters. Right. So this is a, a ongoing debate in the political science literature on whether or not the geographic divides we, we see are a function of real differences and, and how rural whites or rural blue-collar workers or rural poor versus the urban poor, urban blue collar, urban whites. You know, those are real differences that geography is making up, uh, doing some of the work, or whether we're simply witnessing a composition effect. Dan and I, I think, take very seriously the idea that everything we could have be writing about and witnessing boils down to these composition effects. Um, and ultimately, we find strong evidence that it does not. It does not in a couple of key ways. Um, and this is, these, this is a, a way of saying the, how identity and how rural identity matters. Whether, you know, in comparison to urban whites or urban non-college educated or even suburban, uh, you know, on all these demographic or fundamental variables, Rural voters are systematically more likely to have what we call place-oriented grievances to government, which is a lovely social science jargon term that we cannot avoid. But it, it means that they're thinking about how governments treated their local community, their specific local community in the past. Um, the reasons why they do not trust government are localized or place-specific. Um, they're thinking about how likely it is to get ahead in their own community versus others. And what we find is that, at least in, the, uh, in some of these economic dimensions, rural voters are much more likely to think uh, about their community rather than just themselves individually. That's a part of this rural identity. And Dan and I explain um, why that's likely to be the case in, in, in rural communities and how they're structured and how people live live next to one another. Uh, another way in which this identity plays out, um, again, thinking about the difference geography makes, rural people are proud to be from rural areas. 
they pick up on cultural and political signals that make it seem like rural areas are not places where anybody wants to live because rural people really like living in rural areas. Um, that, uh, that's, a, that's another part of, of, of their identity. Dan? Well, on top of that, we borrow some literature on linked fate groups, groups that, that see their future intimately linked to others in their community. Um, and we find this shared fate in rural America that, um, that rural residents uh, are concerned, obviously, about their own well-being, but on top of that, deeply concerned about how others in their community are doing. And that's unique. That's different, this share, shared fate piece. And I will just add, because this is, you know, a poli-sci uh, podcast, that, that we do offer at the end of the book a multivariate model that, 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 that explores this. And uh, we put it all together. And those composition effect variables, they melt away. And it is it is the rural resentment and the link fate uh, pieces that jump out. Did you guys notice any regional differences? Because I, I wonder that there's a there's a famous quote by the political strategist James Carville who said that Pennsylvania is let me get it right uh, it's Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with Alabama in between. And, and I'm wondering if that was if that was the case if if northern rural voters are the same as southern midwestern or if there are any distinctive geographic differences that you picked up in. Well, that's a great question and we went into the project expecting that um the southern piece is very important, right? For a long time Rural residents in the South were Democratic. That's because all residents in the South were Democratic, right? It's the solid South. Um, and we do see, for example, the, the populist movement in the upper Midwest. You know, I, it's interesting. It wasn't that long ago when many sort of upper mid Midwestern uh, Rocky Mountain states were Democratic, right? <laughs> Montana in the 1970s, right? So that, that issue regarding environmental protection, the students brought up to the, to the state Supreme Court in Montana, that springs from the constitutional changes that happened in that state in the 1970s, very progressive changes. So there were these regional differences. The key part of our book is that they melt away. They begin to, the regional state-based differences really melt away by the 1980s and 90s. And surely during Barack Obama's uh, administration, the rural voter, the nationalization of the rural voter is really a, a, a unique phenomenon. We've never seen this in American history. And those regional differences that we would think would be so important, they, they melt away. No, no. The, the irony is that while we cannot often find uh, discernible regional or state-specific patterns on the questions we ask, it's still a hyper-localized way of understanding politics. So it's, it's not as if, even though there's this national rural voting block, it's not as if a, a, a presidential candidate, for instance, can go out there and speak about an abstract rural American or abstract rural policy and really resonate with the specific localized concerns that motivate uh, the, the, these trends that Dan is talking about. 
I, the, one of the things that you you guys brought up previously was about rural voters, and there may be their somewhat different, not so much unique views about government, distrust in government, and I guess on one hand. You could you could think that that's puzzling because there were so many of these charts I've seen about you know government benefits and so many of them seem to flow to what we call what we consider more rural states. Though I know that's a you know necessarily a, a useful way to look at it, but why is it if in fact rural America is getting it seems like a lot of government support in many ways? Uh, why do you think that there is sort of a different level, a higher level of of distrust in, in government there. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in that question. Yeah. The first being, right, uh, how much do rural Americans really get when compared to urban Americans? And and I'll, I'll just state briefly, it's a much more complicated story than uh, I think some certain writers at the New York Times like, <laughs> yeah. like to, to say. Go ahead, go uh, ahead, say it. Paul, Paul, Krug, Paul Krugman's written on this a number of times. Uh, we could say that. He's been, he's been off. Tell him why. Tell him why Krugman's off on this, Nick. Well, Michael, I mean, part of it you you hit right on the head, which is that when we make these geographic comparisons, we're usually operating at a unit of analysis that doesn't allow us to adequately discriminate urban and rural areas. I also would just challenge it on a more fundamental level that when you see tax dollars uh, flowing to rural communities for things like farm subsidies, Okay, this is this is the classic example of rural areas getting more. Is it really rural America that's benefiting from those? Tons of research suggests that it's farm subsidies that have driven agricultural consolidation since the 1960s, ended the family farm, ended a way of life for many rural people that now right most most family farmers in rural America have to earn the majority of their income off the farm. Um, and those subsidies are making food cheaper for y'all living in urban areas too. So I, I often come down and, and, and Dan and I, you know, I've talked about this a lot, that trying to it's it's almost like you're wanting to play the blame game. Who's getting more, who's getting less? And it's a much more complicated story. So why does rural America why are they so distrustful of government? Um, the, the, and the statistics are astounding. I, I, you know, we hear about the crisis in trust and, and the lack of trust in our institutions and how it's plummeted since the 1960s. It is rock bottom in rural America. If you, if, and it's, it's not just political trust uh, towards officials like Anthony Fauci or Joe Biden, you know, rural Republicans compared to urban Republicans twice as likely to distrust those figures. And they're Republicans, right? Um, it's also social trust, just not, you know, thinking that most Americans would take advantage of you. Much more likely to believe that to be true if you're a rural resident. And I think some of it actually does have to do with uh, what we were talking about just now, trying to divide the country into two, um, politicians largely creating narratives of winners and losers even though the story is much more complicated and rural Americans being convinced that they are consistently on the losing side of things. 
even if we can point to various facts and figures that suggest the opposite, you know, that perception is still there and it is increasingly hardwired into the minds of most rural citizens. You, you know, it's it's strange to me that we, we've been talking for this long and I have not yet uh, uttered the words Donald Trump. And I'll do that now because that's a big part, I think, of how a lot of folks are framing this story, right? Because on, on one end, it seems really strange that the sort of uh, spokesperson, almost hero of, of many uh people in rural America is uh, a, a New York City real estate billionaire who tell, only has him a glancing familiarity with religion and very questionable morals. That doesn't seem to me to be traditional American rural values. And yet there, there he is. Well, how, how do you how do you understand this? Well, I think two, two ways. Uh, first, the trend has predated Donald Trump. Right. We, we've, it's clear that the movement away from the Democratic Party in rural parts begins decades before and, uh, and is steep and is dramatic. And we see that with, with, with John Kerry and we see that with Barack Obama. It just, it, it, it continues on. So, so that's part of it. We, we argue that it would have continued, uh, regardless of who the Republican nominee, nominee was in, in 2016 or 2020. That said, I think it's fair to say that Trump's anti-establishment shakes, shake things up approach resonated in rural America. And in, in truth be told, you know, Democrats don't like to hear this. Hillary Clinton fans don't like to hear this. He was also more empathetic, we think. There were... We've, we, we note some exchanges, some differences in style between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. One fascinating little exchange piece has to do with Hillary Clinton talking to some coal miners and then Donald Trump talking to some coal miners. When Hillary Clinton's there, she's talking about ending coal. We're going to end coal, but don't worry. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to bring in some green jobs. We'll do some retraining. You'll be fine. But when Donald Trump comes in, he talks about, um, what it's like to live in a mining community and that you actually might enjoy. You might be proud of being miners. So it's the anti-establishment piece that is very powerful. There was some empathy for rural voters, particularly the job loss, the, the, the sucking sound of jobs being, being pulled away from rural communities because of global economic interdependence. Um, but it's also on top of all that, a trend that had continued before Trump and uh, it is really not all about Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I just I would add to that just real quick, um, and this is this is a part of I think this conversation we're having about perceptions, both in the mind of rural voters and the perceptions that we all bring to our own understanding of politics. It's it's important to recognize, and gosh, I can't even tell you how many times Dan and I have both said it to each other: like a majority of Trump voters live outside of rural places. There, there are more Trump voters on Long Island and in Orange County than in all of Maine, right? The second most rural state in the country where Dan and I live. So <clears throat> there's a lot about the story of Donald Trump that gets linked to rural voters. And, and some of that story is just understanding why anybody, frankly, would, would find that Trump is an, a, an appealing candidate. 
Um, then there's parts of that story that are specific to rural America and rural America's history. I, I think, as, as Dan's alluded to already, with the Democratic Party, that is particularly important. And, and in which case, Trump is, uh, he, he, there's one figure, you know, he, he really does fit the linear trend line of underperformance of the Democratic Party in rural areas. And he does no better in rural America than Mitt Romney did over John McCain, for instance. Uh, he's just, he, he's following that line. It does bottom out in 2020, don't get me wrong. Um, but the, the, that's what we mean by the pattern predates Trump and Trump fits that pattern. Michael, if you don't mind, I, I would add, if it's okay. You, yeah, yeah. Cause you push something on us, Michael. <laughs> it's, it's, an important, it's an important part of the book. It just, we can, you can also just look at, uh, congressional races, Senate races and state legislative races. We've got a bunch of data on state legislative races. I mean, we've, we've seen it in one state after the other. Um, there are no, essentially, uh, very few Democrats and state legislatures who come from rural parts. Almost all, Democratic state legislators come from the cities of those states um, and a dramatic change. So that's not Donald Trump, of course. You know, I, I want to go back to that point that this predates Donald Trump, because I remember and this was, geez, I don't know, probably about 20 years ago, almost now. Uh, Thomas Frank wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas? And I, I read it. A lot of people read it, got a lot of press. And essentially, the argument of the book was that there are these very smart Republican operatives who got rural voters to focus on these cultural wedge issues over economic uh, over economic issues. And so it got these voters to basically vote against their own economic interest to uh, get Republicans into power. And uh, again, it was a very influential book at the time. And, and I'm wondering what you think about that argument that Frank made about uh, uh, about rural voters or, or at least voters in Kansas. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a great book. I love that book. <laughs> I used to teach that book. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the snag these days is our data doesn't support <laughs> some of somebody's some of what he suggests. It's instruction. Tom Frank's got a great. He's a great journalist. And he's done great work. A lot of a lot of great books. Um, but a couple things. Uh, First, what we find now, at least, is that there isn't this sort of massive cultural divide out in rural Americans. Take a look at any rural state that's, for example, allowed to vote on the abortion question. Take a look at Kansas, for example, and other states and Ohio. How did rural voters know? Right. So they aren't rabid anti-abortionist. Right. We again and again, we look at a number of issues and rural voters are no further to the right than are Republicans and in urban and suburban areas, urban and suburban areas. So that's that's the first piece of this. But I do think that there there is another piece, and that is that um, he he touches upon the top down right this manipulation of uh, by 
Republican operatives to push this real real America button. But there were on the ground concrete things that were changing, right? There were things happening in rural parts. The decline, as Nick was talking about, the decline of family farms, the decimation of manufacturing. We talk about the NAFTA ghost towns, right? 63,000 factories have been closed in America and a lot of those in rural parts, right? And the, the snag there is they're closing everywhere, but in rural areas, often the factory or the mine, the mill is the one big employer and it just de- 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 destroys the town. So I think Frank is, is tapping into a frustration and anger. It was top down to be sure, but it was also bottom up. Yeah, the only thing I'd, I'd add to that, and it's been a while since I've, I've read the book, although Dan and I do bring it up occasionally in our own book. Um, I don't think Frank talks about NAFTA and thinking about rural people's economic self-interest. Right? Who, who is really defining rural America's self-interest here uh, when you're making this rather bold claim that you're being hoodwinked by Republicans who, yes, yeah, supported NAFTA too, but weren't in the presidency that pushed it, um, weren't uh, weren't in the party uh, that's dominating in metropolitan areas that are the clear beneficiaries of it. You know, I think what Frank misses is a part of these stories that rural people are telling themselves that braid these economic issues with cultural issues. And it's it's a larger story of nobody gives a shit about us. Nobody Nobody wants rural America to remain rural. Uh, it's in the past. It's behind. And some of that's cultural and, and some of that is being, you know, a part of a, a changing and, 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 and diversifying society. Um, but some of that is real effects of top down policies that Frank supports and benefited from. I, I wonder on this topic, it seems to me that we tend to look at this in uh, largely in terms of the economy and voters almost always say the economy, the most important issue. But I remember reading the book and thinking of being frustrated that Frank didn't talk a lot about these cultural issues as if the economy is the only issue. And and I wonder the extent to which you found that uh, if there is a difference between rural and non-rural conservative voters in terms of those sort of issues and how they matter to their vote choice, or even if they do matter to their to their vote choice. Right. So, what is the the fundamental variable in a lot of economic models of vote choice, or just models of vote choice? Are you better off now than you were twelve months ago or five years ago? <clears throat> and if you are, you're more likely to support the incumbent or the incumbent's party. If you're not, you're more likely to retroactively punish them. Um, This is a fundamental variable that holds in urban areas and suburban areas and, and drops out in rural areas when you account for, I mean, for lack of, I mean, it is sociotropic in that classic definition. These these group-based orientations to how the the community around me or the community that I identify with um, is doing. And in rural areas, what we find is that economic calculus is largely divorced from how well off 
you are doing financially, and rather it is more about your concerns for how your specific rural community is doing. Um, Dan and I take great pains in the in the rural voter survey to ask about people's specific rural towns. We don't say, you know, we don't talk about rural America as an abstract. We say, hey, kids living in Vassalboro today are going to have to leave in order to be better off. Vassalboro is the town I live in. And people's agreement or disagreement with that type of specific place-based consideration in rural America um, creates a spurious relationship when it comes to uh, individuals' pocketbook voting considerations on on their their vote choice in rural areas. And, you know, let me add one of the fascinating findings, I think, in that chapter is what we call economic integration. It's related to this sort of shared fate outlook. And that is what we find is, and anyone, any of your listeners, Michael, who've driven through rural parts will know this, what you often see is a cluster of homes that are maybe not doing so well, could use a second coat of paint, maybe a few trailers here and there. And then a quarter mile down the road, there'll be a beautiful mansion and some sort of modest little homes and mixed homes. And what we what we see is in rural America, much more, we have data to show this, economic integration. So affluent people are much more likely to live next to uh, less affluent, poor Americans in rural parts than they are in uh, suburban or even urban areas. And we think that builds this sense of, of shared fate. And, and just one other additional component, because it is a dominant narrative about how crappy it is apparently to live in rural areas. Most listeners are going to be familiar with this idea of social capital, bowling alone, have probably seen accounts of uh, wastelands of alienation, I think is our favorite description we've read. Um, By many measures, social capital is higher in rural communities. By even our own measures, rural residents by and large are, are more likely in some cases to be engaging with their neighbors. Um, These are, social capital is low throughout the United States. It doesn't do a whole lot to explain um, what we we see in rural places though. Yeah, and now get get this, this is a fascinating question. We asked, all things being equal, if you had uh, the chance to move away from your community, you know, would you take that opportunity? And rural Americans were twice as likely to say they would not move away, right? Urban and suburban Americans are twice as likely to say they would, right? Rural Americans, all in all, want to stay where they live, you know? And part of that has to do with the community that Nick's talking about, their connection to their place. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering because there's this idea that rural America, at least in conservative circles, is the real America. And when you talk about these things, like a, a higher sense of community, uh, wealthier people and poorer people living together, not wanting to, to move, it, it sure sounds to me like you can make an argument that those actually are the sort of American, traditional American values that we hold up as being these great things and that rural America has more of them. And so 
what do you think about that, uh, you know, that, that idea that we hear so often in conservative circles that, well, real Americans are the ones that aren't in the cities, but those are the folks that are out in the countryside and so forth. I mean, it sounds like maybe there's something to that. I think the last place you'll hear the words real America spoken are in rural places. <laughs> um, now, I, I, we ask people, uh, you know, kind of, uh, the narrative has taken hold. It's undeniable. Um, you know, rural people are likely to say you're more likely to find real America out in the towns and the countrysides, and, and so are urban and so are suburban America. I I do not think there's much truth to that. You know, rural America has similar levels of of economic inequality as urban areas. Like this is not the the bastion of egalitarian society, even if people out in the countryside are thinking more about their community's welfare. Um Yes, on some indicators, they are more likely to uh, have higher social capital. It's nothing to be, too, you know, it's not, it's, it, it, it's, it's not like there's no room for improvement, and it's not all that much better than in urban areas. A lot of it tends to be a function of lower crime rates, for instance, when you begin to build these larger indices. Um, I think the rhetoric is incredibly divisive and unnecessarily so that there's uh, somehow this real America. I think I, I genuinely believe that a lot of the issues that rural Americans care about are the same issues that Americans living in suburban America care about. Um, and I, I think what we're witnessing collectively is a political failure to organize competition around those issues. Instead, what we've created are these self-serving myths that benefit politicians that, you know, are, what, what's the, how, how do we explain politics? We explain politics by seeing how the patterns we witness meet the rational self-interest of elected officials. This helps them win office and win re-election uh, by reducing the amount of political competition. I think it's something we need to um, get rid of right away. Yeah, and if we do spend a good chunk of a chapter talking about the evolution of that idea, where it comes from. Ronald Reagan, I think, might have been the impetus, but it picked up steam with Pat Buchanan and by by Sarah Palin and 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 John McCain. It was it was full throttle. It's been a handy tool um, for the right, um, and I think Nick's right. It, it's a myth that 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 is never explained. Rural America or or the rest of America. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of folks on the left, or at least some folks on the left, who would say. If you want to understand why Democrats struggle with rural America, it's because the Democratic Party has made the correct choice to embrace diversity and inclusion. And it's just the fact that there are a lot more racist, homophobic people who are behind the times and we shouldn't change our policies to try to bring these voters into the tent. We should we should expect these voters to change over time. And that's obviously a pretty broad statement and a lot of simplifications there. But what do you think about that, the kind of the fundamental logic there? Well, let me take one part of that and, and maybe Nick can grab the second piece. And that is, we do find that some Democrats can succeed in rural areas. 
right? Just a little north of us is the second district of Maine, uh, the second most rural congressional district in the country. Um, and it is, and it is Jared Golden, right? He's a, a Democrat. Um, what we find is, it, it, is that authenticity and a genuine connection to the district, to the community is very powerful. Um, it can it can overcome some of the some of those nationalized issues we've been talking about. It is not true that Democratic candidates have to jettison their egalitarian, their progressive beliefs. That's it's simply not the case that you have to be a, a centrist or an even far right democrat in order to win in these places we think the key we say it over and over in the conclusion is a genuine connection and authenticity that voters can understand so i, I think that's one piece of it but the, the racial piece is is interesting and i know michael you you touched upon that right so so is aoc gonna be able to win in Maine's second congressional district not a chance at hell um but is she going to win, um, not going to win, excuse me, because of the specific policy she holds? Yeah, you know, and some of that is, there's there's no denying that some of those composition effects that we were speaking about earlier do matter, right? And and, and they do matter at, at, the, at a large level in determining how, how successful any Democratic candidate's going to be in a constituency that is whiter and older, especially. Um, we should also sort of remember where the baseline is on, on some of these cultural issues, um, that a lot of, of Democratic candidates running in deep urban areas are not going to win as soon as they step outside of the, of the deep city. Um, you know, in 2008, when Barack Obama was running, he, he's not coming out and in, in favor of even same-sex marriage, uh, if, I, uh, if I remember correctly, um, you know. So, so some of this is a is a matter of of meeting your electorate where they are. But I think we present a, a lot of evidence to show that the rural electorate is not so far out of the realm of possibility for a progressive candidate to show up and and win. Um, and the issue I think we spend the most time discussing is that of, of race. You know, to the, this point about meeting your electorate where they are, you know, race and races, racism is not confined to rural America. It is, it is throughout every constituency and every candidate running for office has to deal with the complicated politics of, of race and, and how much um, you know, and where you stand on, on those questions. In rural areas, we do find that you are much more likely to hold what we call racially resentful attitudes than if you're living in a, an urban area. You know, and this is just a comparison of white urban Americans versus white rural Americans. How much of that has to do with deep-seated racial prejudice, um, beliefs about biological inferiority, or I, I don't know, some of the narratives that exist about why people hold racist beliefs. Um, 
you know, I think it's an area in need of, of much greater research where, where Dan and I sort of put out some facts is that rural Americans are much more likely to believe that any violation of pull yourself up by your bootstraps ideology, work hard, you know, you can overcome all obstacles, that, that's much more pronounced among rural people. And so how much of the rural opposition to uh, a, a racially progressive policy, I, 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 which is so tough to talk about in the abstract, um, but, you know, how much of that is a function of a, of a deep-seated prejudice against non-white Americans versus how much of it is a, a belief about any violation to that hard work meritocracy standard is is a non-starter you know that's the i think that's what's going on in the minds of rural americans and, and to just close on this statistic you know what we find for instance is that rural americans are um less likely to hold prejudice towards latino americans um on on a number of of scales that scholars have put out there about stereotypes towards latino americans Urban American, urban whites are more likely. So it's, it's this balance between hard work and and racialism that, you know, I, I, I think we need to understand a little bit better. Let, let's get very specific and say that you guys were uh, asked by the Biden campaign to uh, to give to recommend some things that they could maybe do to do to be less crappy in their perform their, their performance was certainly nothing to write home about in rural areas in, in 2020. And so obviously they'd want to improve their performance, but not alienate their urban base. Is, is there, is there anything you think that can be done or it, as democratic politicians or the Biden campaigns currently constituted, they just really have to sort of, Right off rural areas and just try to run up margins in uh, in urban and maybe some suburban areas, which almost seems to be the strategy at this point. Well, I should start by saying that we're very careful not to conclude the book as a prescription for Democrats. Sure, sure. Right. This this isn't one of those books. We spend several pages talking about the importance, the critical importance of two-party competition throughout the United States. You know, we will not do well as a nation long-term if large swaths are utterly dominated by one party. So we are, if it's normative, we are champions of the two-party or multi-party competition throughout the United States. With that said, a little caveat said, um, my, my take, I'm sure Nick's got some thoughts, is that um, there needs to be a sense of, again, authenticity and particularized understanding, particularized assistance to these communities, right? As, as the president's campaign moves into rural states, there has to be an appreciation for what is happening in that state, in that community, right? Which is what Nick was talking about a half hour ago, right? This, on the one sense, there's this nationalized Republican voter, but at the same time, we think it can be overcome by an understanding of what's happening in that place, in that community. 
And now there's often no panacea, right? There's no quick solution to the problem of declining mills in West Virginia or mines in West Virginia, for example, but a deep understanding of the culture of mining of of those communities we think could go could go a ways now you're not not gonna zero things out but it could go a ways i'm sure nick's got some thoughts too yeah and just to echo in dan's dense motivating point about this is not a this is not a pro democratic party book uh, but a pro democracy book dan and i more than anything when we Sitting down, sitting down, thinking, well, what would help rural America? But Dan, I disagree on a lot of that. Just sort of approach the policy problem from different first principles. We're we're, we're a good bipartisan team. Um, if I thinking about Biden, there there are aspects of the outreach that's currently going on. The the barnstorming tour that he started might be over at this point and will certainly be over by the time you know, the podcast is aired but he did go on a rural america tour um, this is something his democratic predecessor was never have, have done uh, and it's certainly something that hillary clinton would not have have, have done if she were president and so he showed up now uh, he, he showed up at a family farm in in minnesota and and spoke about what his administration was doing to help um, family farmers. Um, he spoke about it with some knowledge that was more than the traditional Democratic talking point. Here, we've given you lots of money. Can you please vote for us now? He talked about the regulations that do hurt small poultry producers, for instance, and uh, livestock butchering operations that are increasingly centralized. And again, while most rural Americans are not farmers, talking about the issue with some complexity and some nuance is is a good starting. Is he ever going to fully understand it? No, but there's also that's probably embedded in, in reasons why Biden, whether you're an urban Democrat, is <laughs> not everybody's first choice. I, I I wonder that there are obviously a lot of very smart, well-paid people who want to see these divisions continue and, and even, you know, increase in some ways. And so, but, but I also wonder if we get to a point where they're, they're pretty much as bad as they can possibly be. And so I want to get your take on that. Do you think that we're about as divided as we can get between rural and non-rural voters, or is there room for things to get? even worse. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, we looked at zeroed in on particular counties just for the fun of it. And we see over time, for example, that a rural county in Pennsylvania, you mentioned the Carvel's Common in Pennsylvania, you know, for a long time, a particular county, a Crawford County, a Porter County or something, the, the, the GOP candidate might get 60 or 65 percent. And then it started to move towards 70 and 72 percent. And last couple election, it's 80 and 85 percent. So your question, as it bottomed out, gosh, I hope so. God, I, I, I do. I actually do think. Right. So I'm I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I, I do think 
that the Democrats can turn the corner on this. We're starting to see that. We talk at the end of the book, for example, of Tim Ryan in Ohio, right? So he loses this race against J.D. Vance. But that's actually a lot better in rural communities. It has to do with this connection, this understanding, the complexity Nick was just talking about, this authenticity. So, you know, we're beginning to see that Democrats can do this out there. So you know, my, my take is that we're, we maybe we're rounding the corner. I don't know what you think, Nick. I mean, if uh, Hillary was on the ticket in 24, we, we might have a little ways to go. And then I think about if uh, Harris, I, I don't know what, what the Democratic ticket is, is doing these days. Uh, I, I think, you know, somebody's mind in the White House started changing. But I, I don't I, I actually think these political and geographic divides are very fitting for how focused our politics is on the presidency. Um, when you make everything about the presidential candidate, presidential persona and the presidential's plan for, for actions, you, you have to appeal in these broad strokes to these national electorates that you can carve up by space. Um, when you let when you when you start letting campaigns take on a more local flavor, uh, when you start encouraging people from the actual community that they're from and have worked in for a period of time or even were born and raised in, you know, put them at, at the forefront of a, a of a campaign. Um, Democrats are successful, um, and and I think when Democrats show up and offer a viable choice to a Republican candidate, rural Americans win. The conversation becomes less about um, the soul of America and more about this is what we think is going to improve our local community. These are the problems that we are confronting here. Um, this is my experience in dealing with this just up the road. And, and, and you start to rebuild trust in the people that we've elected to govern us. And and that seems to be, uh, I think, regardless of our party affiliations, that's certainly something we would we would all want: rebuilding trust and real competition throughout uh, America, rural and urban. And as we close, I just want to say to listeners that one of the things I really appreciated about the rural voter is there were so many political books out there that are just thinly veiled or unveiled partisan screeds. And this is so not that sort of book. But And if you're really interested in delving in, we only really scratched the surface here. I, I could have talked to these guys for probably a couple more hours. There's so much good stuff there and it is well worth your time. And so I just want to encourage folks to check out the book. And, and Dan and Nick, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk uh, to me uh, about it today. Thank you, Michael. That was great. I love that endorsement. Can we can we grab that for the for the website? Do you mind if we? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, it was actually a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. 
And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling, knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter-exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our Discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there. At the $10 a month level or more, you get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. And all of our support links are always in the show notes, as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.